All right, Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 15 through 23. Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. Paul goes on and says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, we will not get all of this section done tonight, but there's a chunk of this, though, that we're going to actually dive into. And like I said, uh, I was intending to unpack some of the other things from verses 3 through 14. But as I was looking over this next section, I realized that the things I wanted to bring out could be used to teach and to illustrate verses 15 through 23. So the things that we're, we're going to look at, at the, when we left off last time, I said there's a few more things I want to pull out. We're going to use those tonight to teach this next section. So they'll tie together. So what I want us to do, though, is, is look closely at verse 15. Here is further proof that this letter was written to all the churches in Asia Minor and not just to the Ephesian church. Remember from our introduction, we spent time dealing with who was it written to? Was it written to just the Ephesians or was it a cyclical letter to be passed around? Here is proof. Now, we're not going to go and turn there, but if you want to go look later on in Acts chapter 19, you'll see that Paul spent almost three years in Ephesus. But look at what he says here in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. If Paul was writing to the Ephesian church, he wouldn't have just heard about it. He would have known about it because he spent three years almost with these people in one straight period of time. And so this is a further evidence of the fact that he was writing this not just to the Ephesian church, but also for it to be passed around toward the churches in that area. But at the same time, I want you to look closer again at what we just read. How can you hear of someone's faith in the Lord Jesus or their love for all the other believers how can you hear about that? Testimony. testimony, word of mouth, but there's more to it than that. And here's what I want you to think about. You can't hear about someone's faith unless that person has demonstrated that faith with action. Do you understand what I'm saying? See, it's one thing to say you have faith. It's another thing to actually demonstrate that faith. I remember when Becky and I were first married and because of the situation we were in poverty wise, God was teaching us to live by faith. And in, in doing so, we had no choice but to live by faith. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a shall we trust God or not issue. We had no choice but to trust God. But the amazing thing was, and we know of people to this day that still talk about, boy, we'd never seen anybody live by faith the way you guys live by faith. Now, they gave us a ton of credit, but we didn't have a choice. You know, if God didn't come through, we weren't going to eat. At the, I mean, literally, I, I, there was a time when Becky and I literally were at our, uh, we had no money in the bank. We had a little bit of gas in the car and we had, we had no funds coming in. And we went to eat dinner. It was a Wednesday night. 
It was a Wednesday night that uh, our church in New Orleans that we were at at the time didn't have a Wednesday night supper, but they had a lot of Wednesday night activities. Well, because the fellowship hall was also the gymnasium, they used the gymnasium on Wednesday nights for their activities. And so there wasn't a Wednesday night supper like a lot of churches have. So it was a Wednesday evening and Becky and I were eating our meal at our trailer. I live on seminary campus. We lived in a little trailer. It was 12 feet wide, 62 feet long. I still remember that little thing. And we literally were eating our last meal. We, and this is not an exaggeration. All we had in the house was a box of macaroni and cheese and a can of Spam. And I'm not kidding. The cupboards were empty. There was nothing else. We didn't have milk. We had just a box of macaroni and cheese and a can of Spam. And we made our meal that night. We mixed up the macaroni and cheese. By the way, we didn't have milk. We just used water to mix up the macaroni and cheese. And we cut the Spam up and stirred it in. And literally, that was all we had left. We had no money in the bank. We had, like I said, we had gas in the car to get to church and back. And we literally prayed and said, God, this is all we got. We need help. We need a miracle here. We thanked him for that meal and we drove to church. We went to, through the Wednesday night activities and all that kind of stuff. I was associate pastor at the time and in seminary at the same time. I was part time. And a man who was a teacher of a Sunday school class at that time, went and grabbed us afterwards and he said, Could, do you have your truck with you? Because we had a little pickup truck, a little Zuzu pup. And we said, yeah. And he said, well, I need you to come over to my house and help me haul something. Um, and we're like, sure, okay. So we drive over to his house. He opened the front door and his front living room was full of groceries. Every, I mean, we're talking, the whole living room was packed with groceries, all these brown bags. And he said, our Sunday school class just really felt like God told us to buy you guys groceries. Folks, do you realize that while we were sitting there eating our last meal, all those groceries were already sitting there waiting for us? God already knows what we need before we even ask. And it was like Christmas. I mean, we came back and we we're like, cream corn, you know, and <laughs> it was it was awesome. There was even a frozen turkey and it was amazing what God and we went from nothing to later that same night. Everything freezer fridge was packed full. But we just, we didn't have a choice. We learned how to trust God. And pe people would say, well, we, we, look at the faith of Jim and Becky. Look at the faith of, that's how though this Paul heard about, that's how Paul heard about their faith. If your faith is not demonstrated, no one's gonna hear about it. Oh, they may have heard how that person said they have faith. He didn't say that. He didn't say, I heard about you, how you say you have faith. I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. And so what I really want to take some time to do is just kind of show you a couple of things from the scriptures that it's one thing. And you've heard me say this before. You've got to pass two tests to get a driver's license. One's the written test. The other one's the driving test. American church today can pass the written test. We know all the right answers. But are we actually exercising what we say we know? Are we living by faith? Go to James chapter two and look at verses 14 through 26. I, I don't like spam. That, that night I was glad for it. I was glad for it, but trust me, I haven't rushed to eat more spam since then, I, I'll tell you. We got a frozen turkey and we didn't need spam anymore. James chapter 2, look at verses 14 through 26. Listen to what, what James says. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but doesn't have works or evidence of his faith? Can that kind of faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith without works or apart from works is dead. Now, I got to be honest with you. This section of scripture that I just read actually caused the book of James to almost not make it into our Bibles. When they had the canon of Scripture being put together and this group of council of men were prayerfully over days and weeks and months wrestling with which of these books are from God, which ones aren't. There was a lot of stringent criteria that they had to meet. And one of them was, was it written by someone that we knew to be an apostle and these types of things or someone had been taught by Jesus or seen Jesus and different things like that. But they also examined to see whether or not what was said in that book matched up with the rest of Scripture. And because James was saying what they thought was contrary to what Paul was saying. Paul said, we're saved by grace through faith and not of works. Yet James was saying, you say you got faith, it better be seen by your, your, your works. There was a while there that they thought that he and Paul were saying two exact opposite things. But if you look closely, you'll see he's not arguing with Paul at all. They're saying the exact same thing. All he's saying is, if you really have faith, it will be evidenced by your actions. It will be demonstrated by your life. There's a lot of people that say they have a relationship with God because they've trusted Jesus as their Savior. But you know and I know, you look at their life and there has never been any evidence that they really were born again, that they really were saved, that there's been a change from the Spirit of God. And so just saying you have faith is not enough. And the fact that Paul is saying here that he had heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus meant that they had been demonstrating that faith in many different ways. And again, Faith cannot begin until God has spoken. So I want you to remember that. You can't, faith doesn't begin with you. You can't say, well, well, I like this. I could say, well, I weigh 260 pounds right now. I have faith that tomorrow morning I'm going to wake up and I'll be 250. <laughs> if I have enough faith, no, no, no. If it starts with me, it's not faith. See, that's one of the things that makes a difference between what we as Christians believe and those other religions, if you will, that are out there killing themselves for their God. They are putting faith that their actions will be good enough, but their faith is in what? It's in nothing. The re reason our faith is real is it's in what God has said, and we know God to be true. And if, it, if you put your faith in what God has said, then your faith is real. It has to begin with what God has said. So that's why there's been all this confusion in the church over the years about living by faith. A lot of people in Christian church are like, oh no, those wackos who try to live by faith, they do something stupid and hope God covers their rear ends. Well, yeah, that's not faith. When it begins with you, it's not faith. But, well, let me give you this example. If you were to walk up to someone on the street today and say, hey, if you died today, would you go to heaven? 
They'd say, and they say, well, I'm just going to trust God. You'd say, well, that's foolish because God's already said how we're to trust him. And how are we to trust him? We're to put faith in the fact that he himself took on human form. He actually lived in a human body just like yours and mine. He was without sin. And God himself was punished on the cross for our sins. And he rose from the dead by his own power. And we put our faith in Jesus and what he did. You don't just trust God. No, you specifically tr put your faith in what he said. He said that there's no other salvation except through Jesus. Do you understand? In the same way, I want to challenge you. I'm going to ask you a simple question. If people were to talk about you when you weren't around, would they describe you as, as a man or woman of faith? I didn't ask you if they asked if, you, if they talked about you being a good churchgoer. Are you someone that is known to have demonstrated your faith in God, not only for salvation, but in all aspects of life, because the righteous shall live by faith. Are you living continually trusting in God and what he said? And Paul said, I thank God I, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. And then he also said, and not only that, your love toward all the saints. In the same way, the same thing's true about loving each other. Words mean nothing without being evidenced by your actions. You know, husband-wife relationship, you understand what I'm talking about, don't you? It's one thing to say, I love you, I love you, I love you. But if it's never evidenced by actions, those words are a waste of time. So let me show you real quick what John talks about that. Go to John chapter 13. Look at verses 34 and 35. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Look at what Jesus said. He said, the evidence that people will actually see that you're really my follower, that you're really saved, that you're really a disciple of mine will be what? Our love for one another. Isn't it kind of sad that one of the things that is seen by the world today about the church is how we fight with each other? And how we set ourselves up in our own little camps? And how this group won't worship with that group because they don't like their music and so we're going to worship at 8.30 and that group's going to worship at 11. Isn't it kind of interesting how the Bible says we can say we love each other? Well, let me give you the words of the scripture themselves. Go to 1 John now. Go back by Revelation. Go to 1 John and look at chapter 4. Look at verses 20 and 21. John says here, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, I'm going somewhere with this that I want you to hopefully stick with me on. Back in Ephesians, Paul said, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I have not ceased to give thanks for you. He said, I have heard that you have a love for each other that has been demonstrated. And I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus. That meant that they were a great church. Now, here's where I'm going. Today, how do we categorize or what do we use to measure whether or not a church is a great church? 
How many members? Keep going. There's lots of stuff. What are some things we think about? Oh, they have this. That makes them a great. I'm sorry? Programs. Music. Don't we do that? Don't we say, they've got an incredible choir. That's a great church. What about their buildings or how much money they give? Look closely at what he says. And I want you to hear this. Folks, don't get caught up in this church growth movement that has killed and hurt the church over the last so many years. The focus on results and measurement. We all fall into this. I actually had the privilege of preaching last week at a church in Beverly Hills, Florida. And they're a great church. Now, they're not a big church, but they're a great church because they really do live by faith in the Lord Jesus. And they love each other. It's a cool group of folks. It was really a lot of fun to be with them. And I had to encourage them because they had started to fall into that. Well, there are so many other churches that are bigger and better than us. And I had to say to them, you're so far ahead of most of those places. What makes a church great is a faith in the Lord Jesus and a love for each other. And if you got that, your church is fine. Your church is fine. Don't get caught up into all the other stuff. Because you know what? I can promise you, when you stand before the Lord Jesus, he's not going to ask how many were in your choir. He's not going to say, how many shuttles did you have in the parking lot to bring people back and forth? The issue is a faith in the Lord Jesus and a love for each other. My challenge to you as we get into this rest of the study for tonight, if someone were to talk about you behind your back in a good way, would they describe you as someone who lives by faith in the Lord Jesus, has it been demonstrated by your actions, and that you love people? That's, that's the, honestly, if that's all anybody ever says about me when I die, that's good. That's plenty. That's good. Even more than he was a good preacher. I'll be honest with you, far greater than that. Because how many times have we heard about the guy who was a really good preacher, but he really didn't love people? I don't want to be known as just a good preacher. I want to be known as someone who lives by faith and loves people. All right, let's move on. That was just verse 15. Let's move on here. Paul tells his readers that he's been praying for them. And then he goes on to tell them specifically what he's been praying for them. And by the way, you do understand that the things that Paul is praying for is actually the stuff that God, he's, God's praying for for us. Because keep in mind, Paul was the one who in Ephesians later on in chapter 6 talked about praying in the Spirit. And we're going to talk about that when we get to chapter 6 of Ephesians. We're going to really get into what does it mean to pray in the Spirit. There's a lot of confusion and false teaching about praying in the Spirit. And we're going to show you scripturally what it really is. But let me just give you a little commercial. It's actually praying in a way in which God leads you to pray. God will tell you what to pray for. Because remember, if we ask anything according to His will, we know that He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, we know that we have the things we ask. Wouldn't you like to know what God's will is so you can pray that? And then you'll know it's going to... Well, Paul understood how to pray in the Spirit. And what he's praying for right now for them is the same thing that God had for those in, the heart, in His heart for them. And there's three things. And the first thing I want you to see here is in verse 17. He prayed that God would give them through his spirit within them wisdom and revelation in order to know him better. Let me read it to you in verse 17. He goes and says, I, I keep remembering my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. All right. Now we're going to go on to the other two things in a second. So just say, for, say that stay with me for right now. The first thing he prayed was that they would know God better. Now, isn't that interesting? A lot of us think, well, I'm saved. I know God. No, you don't. 
you have entered into a relationship where you have you begun to get to know God, you know him in the sense that you're saved. Well, if you were to take the time and we're not going to do that tonight because of the time and really take a look at the disciples interactions with Jesus, you'll notice that even though they walked with him, ate with him, slept in the same area that he was sleeping, every time he turned around, he was blowing their minds. There's a time when they're in the boat and, they, and he's asleep and the storm comes up and they say, don't you care if we perish? Don't you care if we drown? And then the Bible says that Jesus got up, he rebuked the wind and the waves, he calmed the storm, and they were completely astonished. They then said, who is this? That's what it says in the scriptures. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. John, one of these disciples who saw him do all these miracles, and actually his gospel is repeating the miracles that he did to prove that he was God. This same John was on the Isle of Patmos at the end of his life. And he hears a voice. He turns around and he sees Jesus and he sees him in a way he's never seen him before. And he fell at his feet as though dead. Let me just tell you, folks, don't think, oh, I know God. Oh, when I was younger, I used to think that the more I learned about God by studying his word or spending time in prayer, that the smaller God would get. You know, it's more manageable. I, can, I figured him out. One of the ways you'll know that you're getting to know God more is he's getting bigger. He, yeah, it's a, yeah, he's definitely, he gets out of hand. And he never was in hand, but we thought he was. Yeah. Keith Green, years and years ago in a book that he wrote, talked about, he said, he, he said just imagine some ants that lived outside his front door. And one ant thought he had Keith Green, the owner of the house, figured out. And that ant tells his other ant, let me just show you what he's going to do. Every morning at such and such a time, he's going to walk out that door. He's going to have a cup of coffee in his hand. And at such and such a time, he's going to come on back. And then next thing you know, it comes to a Saturday and he doesn't come out the door. And it ruins the ant's theology, is what he said. Anybody that thinks they got God figured out, they don't. They don't. Remember Romans 11, 33 through 36? Oh, the depth of the wisdom and the riches and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who's ever known the mind of God? Who's ever been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul just says, you're never going to figure God out. And actually, if you and I could figure him out, that wouldn't be much of a God, would it be? But don't miss this. This same Paul that just wrote that section that I told you and I just quoted to you is the one who said, here's my prayer. My prayer is that you would receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you'd know God better. Don't say, well, I'll never figure God out, so why try? Oh, no, no, no. The more you get to know him, the, 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 the more you understand peace, the more you understand joy, the more you understand, you know what? God's got it. The bigger he gets, the smaller this stuff in this world gets. And don't we need to have a big God right now? Exactly. So, well, let's go to Philippians. You're in Ephesians. Turn over one book to the book of Philippians. Paul actually had this prayer for himself. Look at verses 7 through 21. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 21. Paul had just talked about all the things, all the effort he had put into being a religious person in his previous life, if you will. And he said he counted that all a loss now. For whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of the Lord of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have already attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Pretty much Paul said, I, you know what, I know God and I'm being used of God to go preach and teach who he is. And I know about Jesus and I've entered into a relationship with him. But I have also come to realize because Jesus is God that there's so much more. And I am straining forward to know him more. I'm so focused on the life to come. I'm so focused on what there is to come that I don't even really focus on this life. All the stuff that I had, I count that all as lost because you know what? This time is temporary. Eternity is for real and forever. And I'm focused on that. And I want to know Christ better. Now, listen, you can't get to know Christ better by taking a course. I hope you understand what I'm talking about. What we have here is valuable and necessary because God's designed that there be teachers and preachers and there'll be time that we get together to encourage each other and to study the word. But you will not get to know God better by taking a class. I don't care how many diplomas you have on your wall, how many certificates of discipleship courses you've taken or how many Bible studies you've been to or in how many Beth Moore books you got on your on your library shelf. It doesn't make you know him better unless you actually put into practice what you've been studying. You actually have to exercise your faith. You have to trust him. You have to go through the suffering to find out if this really will float, if you will, if he's really real. And this knowledge of him is a spiritual thing, because look at what he says. Go back to Ephesians and how he worded it. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Did you see that? God has to help you see this. He doesn't say, I pray that Jim teaches it good in a couple thousand years. He's saying, God's got to open your eyes. Pray that God through his spirit within you will begin to reveal to you who Jesus really is, who God really is, and that you'll get to know him better. All right. Well, Go to 1 Corinthians 2. It's actually clarified in what we just were talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the, of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 2, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, look closely, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But... We have the mind of Christ. Now, you might not have caught all that, but what Paul was saying simply is this. Folks, we understand things that the world will never understand unless they get saved and the Spirit of God comes to indwell them. You've heard me use this illustration before, but I'll just say it for those who don't remember it or haven't heard it. Have you, how many people here have had chocolate ice cream? Can anybody tell me what it tastes like? Can you tell me what chocolate tastes like? You can't. You can't. The best you can do is say sweet. And I'm like, yeah, help me out. Think about it. Can you tell me what chocolate ice cream tastes like? You can't. The only way you can get me to understand what chocolate ice cream tastes like is to say, Jim, here's the spoon. Try it for yourself. And then I'll know what it tastes like. And I won't be able to tell anybody either, but I'll know. Now, the world may say, well, how do you know you're saved? How do you know God's living inside of you? How do you know you're going to heaven? And all you can say is, it's like chocolate ice cream, my friend. I can't help you. I know, but I can't explain it because God's designed it to be by faith. All we're to do is present them the spoon and say, look, his name is Jesus. Trust him for yourself. And once they do, they'll understand and they'll know. This same Paul thought that these people were crazy. He was going out to kill them because they were ruining the Jewish religion and all those things. But when he met Jesus for himself, he became the leader of the Christian church. What happened? He met Jesus for himself. And folks, we understand stuff Paul says that the world will never understand. The spiritual things of God are not possible to be understood by the world because they're spiritually attained. Listen, that's why we shouldn't kill ourselves trying to convince people with arguments. Do you think that you can convince someone with your superior logic? This is a spiritual thing. If they don't get it spiritually, they didn't get it. That's why the Bible says to avoid arguments and all that kind of stuff. And then he also said this. He said, the only one that knows the mind of God and the thoughts of God is the spirit of God. Just like no one knows what you're thinking right now. You could be sitting here, this room full of people looking at me. Some of you probably thinking about who's winning the baseball game and your favorite team tonight right now. Some of you are thinking I shouldn't have ate that last helping of dessert over there on the table. Some of you actually might be still paying attention at this moment. I don't know what's going on in your mind. 
Only one that knows what you're actually thinking right now, especially when you look at Ron, you never know what he's thinking. He'll usually have it advertised on his shirt, but today he's not wearing those kind of shirts. The only one that knows what's actually going on in everyone's head right now is the spirit of that person, correct? In the same way, the only one that knows what God is thinking is God. But listen, we have now indwelling us who? God himself. We have the mind of Christ. But I don't want you to miss something, and it's going to become clear in a little bit tonight. We are able to understand the things freely given us by God. Did you catch that? God is not going to be able, or he's not, he's not designed to tell us everything. There's going to be things in this life of faith, even for us who have the Spirit, who understand things that the world don't understand. There are going to be things that even we don't understand. And are you willing to just say God hasn't said, so we're not going to waste our time worrying about it. If he has, we'll go there. If he hasn't, well, Deuteronomy 29, 29 puts it real well. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed to us and to our children. So if you think you can get to know God better by taking a class, no, I can teach you about him. I can teach you about who he is and how he works and these types of things and what the scripture says. But if you get it, it's because the spirit of God has opened your eyes to it. And that's how you enter in a relationship. And that's how you grow. And so you need to spend time listening to who? Him. The spirit of God. And Paul says, I'm praying that God will give you the spirit. It's already in you of wisdom and revelation so that you'll know him better. All right. Now, God's written word is a very valuable tool in that because it'll help you recognize which spirit's talking to you. You do understand that God's spirit's not the only spirit talking right now in this world. There are some evil spirits, demonic spirits. There'll be doctrines taught by demons. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says, test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God. If you don't know the word of God, you won't, you, you'll fall prey to all sorts of stuff and you won't know what's truth and what's not. That's why we need to know the Word of God and we need to read the Word of God. But you need to at the same time then say, Holy Spirit, you live within me. Give me understanding. And he will. He will. I'm teaching my kids to meditate on the Word of God. And I spent a little bit of time today with my middle daughter, Elise. She's working at Chick-fil-A tonight. And uh, I've made a few commercials on this uh, recording for Chick-fil-A, but I haven't got anything out of it yet. But, but uh, <laughs> my daughter doesn't even help me out. But uh, so... But I surprised, I, I, I took, her to, took her to breakfast today. She, had, she's at, she was at BCC and she had a course this morning and then her middle course, well, I'll just tell you why. Um, it's trigonometry and a professor said, you've done so well in the course, if you get a 97 or better on this last test, you don't have to take the final. So she got a hundred because <laughs> she didn't want to take the final. I've got a, our kids are freaky in that way. Well, so she had a class now that she didn't have to go to today. And then she had another one later on at 12 something. And so I drove up to where she was at school, had her get in my car and I took her to breakfast. But I'm teaching as we sat there and we talked during that time that she would have been in trigonometry class. We talked about <laughs> meditating on the word of God. She's at that point now where she's about to be a senior in high school and start her last year of school and go off to college and she'd love to have a boyfriend and all these things. What's next? And so we took some time today to talk about Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord your God with all your heart and all your ways acknowledge him. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. Listen, and he will direct your path. And I told her, honey, focus on those that section of it. Meditate on that. Let him speak to your heart. He will direct your paths. Because I said, do you trust him? She said, yes. I said, do you trust him? She goes, I want to. 
And I said, that's well, now we're now we're, he knows you don't fully trust him yet. I don't fully trust him yet. But spend some time letting him speak to your heart from his word. He will direct your paths. He will direct your paths. He will direct your paths. And once you'll know when it hits your heart, it'll make it in. Folks, you need to meditate on the word of God so it moves from here and you pass the driving test. Again, we can all pass the written test. We know the right answers. But has anybody heard about your faith and your love for each other? Or have they heard that you just passed the written test? Oh, did y'all catch something there in 1 Corinthians 2? Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and look at verse 9. This leads right into the second thing that Paul prayed for his hearers. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 9. That as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. What was he talking about? He's talking about heaven. He's talking about what's to come. Go back to Ephesians 1 and look at what he says in verse 18. He's just prayed that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they would know God better. And uh, actually, uh, that, that they received the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know God better. And now in verse 18, he says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is combined. Paul says, I not only prayed that you would know God better, that God would help you know him better. My second thing I'm praying for you is that you would have the eyes of your hearts opened so that you would know the hope to which he's called you, what is the glorious inheritance that you've got coming to you because you're a child of God. Now, there is so much here, we probably won't have time to get to the third thing that Paul prayed for him tonight. And I'm sorry about that, but that's my way to get you to come back. But uh, this hope we have in, is in what is yet to come. I, wanted to, I want to help you tonight just by looking at this. We're going to look at it in great detail to really get excited about what's yet to come. Go to Romans chapter 8. Now we're going to read Romans 8 backwards. We're going to read verses 18 through 25, and then we're going to go look at verses 14 through 17. Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. Listen to what Paul says here. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, real quick, would anybody agree that things are kind of rough? Even though here in America, we got it really good. And compared to the whole world, we actually got it really good. But even us, we're all moping and whining about how bad things are. Paul says, just trust me on this. Not even worth what you're going through now, worth being even compared with what's to come. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And we've talked about that in the past. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But what, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Here in this whole context, Paul says, let me just tell you, what's to come is far better, not even worth being compared to what you're going through now. Now, by the way, how would Paul know that? Does anybody know how Paul would know that? He saw it. He saw it. 14 years prior, 
He actually had been taken by God. He didn't know if he was in the body or in the spirit. He didn't even know he said that twice. But he knows that he actually got to see the third heaven. He got to see paradise. Now, interesting, and you're going to see this ties into where we're going. He wasn't allowed to tell what he saw. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you would see it. Paul said, I know a man, and he's talking of himself. He makes it clear later on in that context, who was taken into heaven. And he wasn't allowed to write what he saw. But this same guy said, let me just tell you. What's to come is way better. I can't tell you. But it's way, way better. Not even being worth compared. By the way, he was writing to Christians who were being killed for their faith. Losing their property. Being outcast. Some were being sawn in two. Others were being fed to the lions. Folks, Paul was writing to these people and saying, just hold on and trust me in this. What's yet to come is far greater. You can't even compare it. And not only that, creation knows something you don't know. Creation is itself waiting. It was subjected to frustration at the fall, and it was put under the curse. It's waiting for you guys to get your new bodies, for the sons of God to be revealed. For those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. And you've had me ask you this question before. How many of you have ever been to heaven? Exactly. But how many of you are homesick for heaven? How can you be homesick for a place you've never been? Because the Spirit of God within you, He knows stuff you don't know. And that's why we, we can't wait till we get there. But there's a wrestling match that we have with these things about heaven. Paul says, my prayer is that God would open the eyes of your hearts to know the hope to which he's called you and the glorious inheritance that you have waiting. Yet the same Paul also said, I'm not allowed to tell you everything I saw. So there are going to be some aspects of heaven that we are going to be able to know because they've been revealed to us. There's going to be other aspects we won't be able to know. Look at Romans chapter 8 here, verses 14 through 17. And it talks about our inheritance coming. He says in uh, verse uh, 14 through 17, he says, uh, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, do you remember when we did the introduction into Ephesians and we talked about how God's plan from eternity was that everything would be centered around Jesus Christ? Things in heaven, things on earth, everything would be centered and that he would receive the glory. Did you catch what Paul said here? We're not only co-heirs, we're joint heirs and we will be glorified with Jesus. This is a hard thing to fathom, folks. In some way, when we get in this world to come, we will be glorified with Christ, rewarded with Christ. And some of us say, oh, I just, well, I'll just be happy to be there. Mm, no, no. If you think, oh, I'll just be happy to be there, you don't, you don't understand what the Bible teaches. Because the same Spirit of God that lives within you is the one that wrote this book, which it is. He's the one that said, store up treasure in heaven. Be living your life for there. Don't be worried about whether or not your investments here are making you money here. Be focusing on whether or not what you do here is going to be giving, earning you reward for eternity in heaven. Because actually stuff down here is going to, you're going to lose it. It could be stolen. The moths could take it away. But if you store it up in heaven, you'll get it 
and it'll be yours forever and ever. Oh, and by the way, when you're in heaven, you won't be a steward. The Bible actually says that it will be yours for eternity. You won't be a manager of God's stuff in heaven. The Bible actually teaches it will be yours. And oh, those of you that think, oh, I'll just be happy to be there. You don't understand eternity and you have no idea that the Bible teaches that you will be suffering loss for eternity if you don't understand to live for the life to come. Do you understand the importance of wanting to get to know God better? What do we understand why he's saved me and what his purpose is for my life and for your life and to live according to that? Because this life is not all there is. So with all that we've just read here in Romans, I want to go back now and read chapter one, verses three through 14. The section that I was going to go back to, listen to how different it sounds now. We just read in Romans that there is an inheritance to come, a glory to come, all this. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter one, verses three through 14 said, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms or heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, which is Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he, I love this word, lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in, in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I don't know if you caught it or not, but he kept saying lavished, blessed, grace, every spiritual blessing, inheritance. And oh, and by the way, he gave you his spirit as a deposit to help keep reminding you this isn't the life you're living for. I don't care what the book says. I don't want my best life now. I want my best life to come. And the spirit of God within you and within me is going to be reminding us of this. And Paul said, here's my prayer for you. I've already heard about your love for each other and your faith in the Lord Jesus. Here's what I'm praying now. As awesome as that is, I'm praying that you would have wisdom and revelation to know who God is better, that you grow in your knowledge of him. And on top of that, that your eyes, your hearts would be opened so that you would understand the hope to which he's called you and the glorious, well, it's in May, the glorious inheritance in the saints. We're going to get to next time we get together his immeasurable power. We'll get to that when we come back. Well, for tonight, let's just take a look a little bit more about what we're talking about here. He said that we have spiritual blessings in the heavy places. We're adopted as God's children. We have obtained an inheritance and the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of what's to come. So how much can we know about what's to come in heaven? Whatever he freely gives us. Good. Now the question is, what has he freely given us? Now, I can tell you, and I'll give you a couple of things, but I want you to begin 
to wrestle with it for yourself. I want you to respond to this prayer of God for you. I don't want you to say, Jim, just tell us what it is that God has for us to come. I want your eyes and your hearts to be open so that you not only would know him better, but that you would also know the hope to which he's called you. And the way he wants to begin to show that to you may be different than he shows me. Now, this is a commercial, but it's not a commercial to sell anything because we give all our CDs and DVDs away. I have taught a six part series on that cruise ship last October on heaven. If you're interested in using that as a launching point, just send us an email at the minute at the web through the website. We'll send you either DVDs or CDs or see Allison. She has four copies with it of the CDs. DVDs are available as well. We don't charge. We just give them away. So listen, there is available to you. People say, well, the Bible didn't talk about heaven. Actually, you'd be surprised. I was surprised when God began to show me that he, that's what he wanted me to teach on. It blew my mind when I began to study how much the Bible actually does talk about heaven. And I'll just give you a little commercial. For years, we've grown up thinking that there's no time in heaven. The Bible actually teaches very clearly that there is time in heaven. Now, part of the reason is, is because of the King James translation in Roman, Revelation chapter 10, verse 6, an angel speaks up and says, there's no more time. And because of that, songs were written about how it's a land with no time and all this stuff. And we grew up thinking that heaven, there's no time. But actually, the better translation of that word time is actually delay. That angel said, there'll be no more delay. And actually, if you look at the scriptures, it says in the book of Revelation that the tree of life gives its fruit, what, every month? The Bible says that there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour at that one point, remember? All the way through, if you're really willing to look, the Bible actually teaches there's time in heaven. Now, time might not be like it is here. It might not be 24-hour days like we have here, but there is time in heaven. And when I started to move my study and realized, man, I thought heaven had no time, and now I've realized there is time, and there's like five or six places that said there was, I started to realize there's a lot about heaven I never learned. And I began to unlearn all the stuff I had been taught about heaven, and it'll blow your mind to find out how real and awesome. And I will just tell you this, heaven will be a recreation of the Garden of Eden. And the, all that was lost in the garden will be recreated for eternity. And wouldn't it have been cool to live in the garden? They weren't floating on clouds playing harps. Paul says, my prayer is that you would have your eyes of your heart opened to the hope to which he's called you. Remember, that's what's yet to come. Who hopes for what he's already seen. And also that you would understand the glorious inheritance that is available to you. Now, we have a say in how big that gets. You have a say until he comes and gets you, how big that gets. So how much will we know? Well, like I said, in first, second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul said that he was not allowed to talk about what he saw. Yet go to first John chapter three. First John chapter three, look at verse two. He said, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be, what? Revealed. Has not yet appeared, or not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. So, we don't even know what kind of bodies we're going to have. We can sit and argue and say, well, I think it'll be like this. And, well, we saw Jesus' body, so, no, no, the Scripture says we don't know. It hasn't been revealed to us. And oh, by the way, John wrote this after Jesus had risen from the dead and walked on the earth for 40 days. So you can't say, I know it'll be just like Jesus' body, because John, who saw Jesus in that resurrected body, wrote through the Spirit of God, what will be like, what our bodies will be like, hasn't yet been revealed. 
But we know it will be like his. Doesn't the Bible also say in 1 Corinthians 15 when it talks about what kind of body we're going to have? And he just simply said the kind of seed that goes in the ground isn't what comes up out. In the same way, the kind of bodies we put in the earth aren't the kind of bodies we're going to get when we get our new bodies. Do we know what kind of bodies we're going to have when we get to heaven? No. But we do know this much. They'll be way different from these here. That's good enough for me. They'll be way better. Duke, Duke might be able to keep his hair for a while. The Bible does teach they'll be recognizable. A lot of that stuff I deal with in that, in, in that series, but they definitely will be recognizable. Definitely be recognizable. But again, what I want you to see is there's some things that the Bible says we won't know in this life. But that doesn't mean we just sit back. Because remember, there are some people that say, well, doesn't it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has anybody imagined what God has in store for those who love him. So we're not to know. No, 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 no. What does the next verse say? But he has revealed it to us. By his spirit. So there are things we are to know. So I want to teach you now as we respond to this prayer of God that we would have our eyes of our hearts open to what is really coming, what's to come, that we would not waste our time chasing things that aren't to be known, yet still be looking for the things that will be known, the things freely revealed, as Allison said. Well, look at Revelation. You're not going to turn there, but Revelation chapter 4 through chapter 22. Don't you think John was allowed to tell a lot of what he saw in heaven? He described quite a bit. The New Jerusalem, the Millennial Kingdom. He talked about the tree of life and the streets of gold and the gates of pearls. God's not totally hiding everything. He's giving us enough to understand that there's a world to come and that there's a reward to come. And he wants it in our hearts that that's what we're living for. That's all. Be living for that. And there's some things you can learn about that. So I broke it down in this way. There is first a surety of what is to come. You know, one of the saddest things is I've asked those who claim to be Christians around the country, because I don't know them, and so I'll squeeze and sniff and thump even church members. If you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And you'd be amazed how many Christians, or let me put it this way, those who claim to be Christians say, I hope so. Didn't the scripture say he's given us his spirit as a guarantee of what's to come? But here's here. Now, now, please, please don't let the enemy cause this to make you question whether or not you're saved. There's a difference between wondering if you're saved and knowing you're lost. OK, anybody that tries to make you wonder if you're saved, that's not how God works. When God wants to reveal to you you're lost, he shows you you're lost. But the Bible does say that his spirit confirms with our spirit that we're his children. The Bible says that he's given us of his spirit to confirm that we're his and we have what to come. Folks, if you don't know in a way that only you can know, because it's like chocolate ice cream. But if you don't know that you have his spirit within you, let me just tell you, that should be the first and foremost thing you walk out of here to deal with. Second Corinthians 13, 5, you heard me quoted a bunch. Examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? Oh, don't say, well, I know I prayed a prayer or I. No, no, no. There are demons that say they believe. They shudder. We already read that. Do you know his spirit's in you? Well, Jim, how can you know? Well, there's lots of ways. But the Bible already said his spirit will confirm with your spirit that he's there. But let me give you a way to get started because I know what that wrestling match is. I went through it. But one of the ways that you'll know that you're his is if you read this book and you understand it. Don't, I didn't say you understand everything. But if you're reading the scriptures and you, the spirit of God helps you understand it, 
That's only because you got the Spirit of God. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you can't. Remember, we already read that, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Man without the Spirit doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. They're foolishness to him. He even had to open the eyes of the disciples. Exactly. To they did not, he, would, he told them over and over, I'm going to rise from the dead, I'm going to rise from the dead, I'm going to rise from the dead. And it wasn't until after they received the Spirit that they understood, oh, he had to rise from the dead. And so in the same way, but let me just tell you, folks, there are too many of us that grew up in denominations that talked about how, well, we've got the closed canon of Scripture. God's already revealed Himself to us through the Word. And none of us have ever been taught to learn how to be led of the Spirit, to recognize His Spirit, to hear Him speak to our hearts. Now, there are those who have taken that to wacky, unbiblical realms. Don't let them scare you off from biblical truth. I want to, this is the way that my conversation with my daughter happened today, and, and it ended up and has happened with each of my kids. They'll tell you it's the same. <clears throat> I don't want our kids leaving our house focusing on following mom and dad's rules. We want to know that when they leave our care, that they have come to a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The Spirit is confirmed in their spirit that they're His and that they know how to listen to the Spirit of God and listen to Him and follow His plan for their life. Honestly, if our kids leave our house and head into the world of life that God has for each of them and we know that they hear from God and they know how to follow, because we can hear and disobey, but they know how to listen and follow, that's the only thing we care about. Everything else falls by the wayside. Do you know how to hear from God and do you follow Him? Because honestly, mom and dad won't always be there watching what movie you watch or what you eat or what you drink or where you go or who you hang out with. And I don't want you thinking this relationship with us is a thing of rules. It's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And if you hear from God and you follow Him, I could look my daughter in the eye and say, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. So folks, first there's a surety of what is to come. Secondly, there are things about the future we can know. Go do the study. Lastly, there is much we have to wait for in faith. But that's okay, too. When each of our kids were born, Becky and I did it the old-fashioned way. We didn't, whenever the doctor said, well, we can tell you whether it's a boy or a girl, we'd say, nope, no, 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 no. We wanted the surprise on that day. So when each of our kids were born, we were all peeking. What is it? And then AJ was born and we still say, what is it? <laughs> it, it it's bigger than me and it eats a lot and it's only 14. But here's, but here's the deal. I like the fact that there's stuff I won't know till I get there. And it's going to be exciting. Oh, and as the Bible teaches, we'll be learning more and more about who he is and exploring heaven for eternity. For eternity. We'll get next time we come together next week to the third thing that Paul prayed, that we would know the power of God, that same power that rose Jesus from the dead. And we'll deal with that when we come back together. Thank you again, Father, for this chance to spend time in your word. Thank you for the fact that just in these few verses, there's so much here. And I know tonight as I was teaching, you showed me two or three other things that we'll have to just save for another time or maybe it's just for me. But Lord, my prayer is that the folks here would continue in their individual relationship with you to let you speak to them and to continue to teach them and to grow them in what you have for each of them. And Lord, if there's anybody here that's been brought by your spirit today that doesn't know you, may they leave the, not leave here if today's the day they're to trust you without talking to somebody about trusting you as their savior and having you give them your spirit to confirm that they're yours and begin to get them excited about what's to come because of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.